of Esther, and uh, I'll be reading from chapter 9, starting at verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, uh, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got release from their enemies, and as a month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy, to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what, they had, what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them and without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, <clears throat> nor should the com commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim, Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus. Amen. I tried practicing that name too. Uh, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim uh, should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let me pray for us. <clears throat> God, we thank you just for this time, and we pray that you speak to us. And, you know, wherever we're coming from, whatever circumstances we're coming from, uh, the one thing that uh, is certain is we uh, need to hear from you. We need to be reminded that you are uh, at work in our lives and that you are good. So may your Holy Spirit impress, uh, you know, these words upon our hearting. Uh, give us encouragement and lift our spirits because of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, last week we wrapped up our series on 2 Corinthians, and <clears throat> uh, in that letter we explored themes of weakness and power. And in the fall, just to tell you where we're planning on going, uh, starting in September we're going to preach through the book of Acts. And uh, I think one of the things that uh, I hope we can do is, you know, kind of refocus and recenter on... Um, you know, not only the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, but on the church and mission. And uh, so for August, August is kind of like a hodgepodge of things, and uh, Fred will preach a couple sermons in August. And I was thinking about what I wanted to preach on today, and I decided I want to preach on the book of Esther today. Uh, the inspiration for why I want to preach on the book of Esther came from actually a vacation that we, my family and I took in Florida, and we visited like this small church down in Florida, and they were going through a sermon series on the book of Esther, 
And I found actually the message of Esther to be like really encouraging at that point. So I thought, let me, uh, let me preach on the book of Esther. Uh, it's, it's like a really amazing, like dramatic story. It's an incredibly like complex book, but I find it also to be incredibly encouraging. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen a silent film. Uh, the young ones, definitely, you have. Wow. That's, how about the adults? Silent films? No, right? Uh, we're, we're still too, like, young for that silent film generation. Uh, I saw my first silent film a couple months ago because, if you remember, like, I was in school, and one of the assignments was we had to watch a Charlie Chaplin film. And uh, the film that we saw was called Modern Times. It still holds up, right? It's still kind of funny. And a lot of people consider it to be, at least culturally, in American culture, to be one of the most significant films made. And when you're watching a silent film, you know, there's very little dialogue going on. So basically, you're just looking at the activity and the action the film. There's a little dialogue where they have like a sign and, right, <laughs> they print out the dialogue. But for the most part, there's very little dialogue. And you're just kind of trying to follow the storyline through the activity that's going on on the screen. And this film, Modern Times, that Charlie Chaplin is in, you know, it's supposed to be like this satire and a commentary on the effects of uh, the modern industrialization, and even though the actors aren't saying anything, like, you, you are still trying to analyze the film and say, you know, what, what are the filmmakers trying to communicate through the activity that's going on? And so you see uh, the Charlie Chaplin character, right, the tramp, um, the famous character. Uh, Charlie Chaplin's character, he's, like, working in a factory, and his job in, like, this assembly line is to, to screw in the, the rivets. And so, uh, right, everybody has like a very particular job they're doing and like the, th the machine or whatever is coming down the assembly line and he's just going like this, right? <laughs> and then after his shift is over, because he's been doing that for like eight or nine hours, he just can't stop doing this motion. So he, he, you see him like coming out of work at the factory, he's walking down the sidewalk and he's just going like this, right? And that, I guess that's the comedic element of it. Uh, and if you watch it on the surface, you know, it's, it's like a funny gag, but then if you dig a little bit deeper, you see it's, a, it's really a commentary that he's making on modernity and the technological advancements that were happening during the industrialization period and this desire for efficiency. And what he's trying to show is all of these things is creating a greater sense of alienation and even a loss of humanity. You kind of become like the machine, right? And so you can appreciate the movie on the surface. And if you just like watch it without like trying to figure out like the underlying message of the film. It's still like an enjoyable film to watch, but to really get the point and the significance of the film and culture, you have to see what is being said underneath. And in many ways, I look at the book of Esther like that. If you know anything about this book, I know it's not like one of the most super popular books in the Bible, but if you know anything about this book and this story, you'll know that one of its prominent features is that God is not in this book. He's not in this story. He's not explicitly mentioned uh, in this book. And so on the surface, you could say, like, you know, on the one hand, this is like this very dramatic underdog story about coincidence and about courage and about all these kinds of things. But if you really dig deeper, this is actually a story that tells us something significant and important about God. Now, some of you may know the story of Esther, but I also recognize some of you may not be familiar with the story and it's a little bit hard to just preach on one section without giving the broader context. So I'm actually going to tell the story of Esther and give a, a bit of an overview. And hopefully um, you can follow along. Uh, but basically in the story of Esther, it begins with the people of Israel. They're living in exile under the Persi Persian Empire. And at the beginning of the story, the king of Persia, who is called, a, right, the name I struggle with, Ahasuerus, 
which is uh, actually Xerxes, uh, in the book of Esther, he, he throws two, two parties. He throws these two banquets, and these banquets last 187 days. Can you imagine partying for 187 days? Things get a little bit more ridiculous from there because you find out the reason he throws these banquets is so he can celebrate his own greatness, right? We like birthdays, and uh, actually probably we don't like birthdays because of the attention given to us. Um, uh, and, you know, maybe we feel uncomfortable with, like, people saying, oh, how great you are. But this king had no problem with it. He's like, let me throw a party that celebrates how great I am. So the first banquet lasts 180 days. The second banquet lasts seven days, and the king ends up getting drunk on wine. In his drunkenness, he summons Queen Vashti to come to him, and this queen refuses to come at the king's command. And so the king gets angry, and in response says, Queen Vashti is queen no more, right? <laughs> and he is so worried that the queen's behavior is going to cause all wives to have contempt for their own husbands that he issues like this very ridiculous decree and says, all women must give honor to their husbands, right? Uh, king obviously has some issues. Now, after the decree, Vashti is no longer the queen. Her title is gone, and a search for a new queen begins. This is where Esther and Mordecai enter the story. The way the king of Persia decides to look for a queen, he's like, let me hold a beauty contest. Again, it's a little ridiculous, but we live in a country where we had a former president who used to own the Miss USA pageant, so not a stretch of the imagination. Mordecai is a Jewish exile, and he's raising Esther, who was his cousin. Esther's mother and father uh, both died, and we don't know the reason why they both died, but she's an orphan. Mordecai basically adopts her as his own, and she enters into this beauty contest, and what Mordecai says is, like, hide your Jewish identity. Don't tell uh, people that you're Jewish. She ends up winning this beauty contest. The king of Persia selects her to be the next queen, and Mordecai uh, just kind of happens to be sitting at the gate, and overhears these, like, two, uh, two of the king's eunuchs, and they plot to, it says, lay hands on the king, which basically means they intended to assassinate the king, to kill the king. And Mordecai, Mordecai overhears this plot, tells Esther. Esther tells the king, who investigates, finds that these two men indeed were plotting to kill him. And so the plot is thwarted. Then we have this other character named Haman the Agagite. Haman functions as the villain in this story, and after Haman is promoted by the king of Persia, we find out Mordecai does not like Haman. And the reason we know that is because Haman, the Agagite, he wants, uh, and basically Agagites are descendants of Canaan, so there's probably uh, some historical, and Can Canaanites were historical enemies of Israel. Haman demands people bow down to him, and Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman or pay homage to Haman. And so Haman gets very mad. He's like, how, what? How, how, how can this Mordecai guy, why is he not bowing down to me? And then he plots, right? He has another ridiculous plot. He's like, because Mordecai didn't bow down to me, I want to kill all the Jewish people, right? Haman gets uh, the king to issue a decree to kill all the Jewish people. And that sets up the drama of the story. And so you see, circumstantially, things are not set up very well for God's people, for the Jewish people. They're in this weak vulnerable position because they're living in exile under Persian rule, and the reason that they are living in exile is because of their own sin, and it's, they're under God's judgment for their sin and idolatry, and it seems like maybe God has been uh, silent for a, a long period of time, and while living under this Persian rule, the king of Persia promotes a man who is so full of pride and arrogance that in response to his own arrogance when Mordecai doesn't bow down to him, he says, let's kill all the Jewish people, right? Not a great situation to be in. 
as bad as things look for the Jewish people, it, it's through the, a series of coincidences that end up preventing their complete destruction. Vashti happens to be the kind of woman who had the boldness to refuse the king's command, leading her to lose her status as queen, opening up a search for a new queen, opening up the way for someone like Esther, who happens to have the kind of physical beauty that would help her get chosen as the next queen to become the next queen. Mordecai happens to overhear uh, a plot. Right, he's in the right place at the right time. He happens to overhear this plot to kill the king, ends up warning the king, and that gets recorded in a book. After Haman makes plans to kill Mordecai, the king happens to have a night where he can't sleep. He happens to have insomnia. And in his insomnia, he happens to open up a book of memorable, memorable deeds and discover, hey, Mordecai is the one who discovered the assassination plot and saved his life. And when he discovers what Mordecai did, he realizes, hey, I need to honor this guy, Mordecai. No one's honored him yet. We need to honor him. And the timing is really incredible because it is also around this time where Haman comes up with this plot or this plan to have Mordecai killed. Now, when you think about how bad things were circumstantially for the Jews, you can only conclude that the odds are things are not going to turn out okay for the Jewish people, right? The odds are not very high. But then you see how the series of coincidental events end up being the very reason why the Jewish people are spared. Since Mordecai was at the right place at the right time, he's able to warn the king and later uh, earn the favor of the king. Since Esther happened to be chosen as the next queen on account of her beauty, she's able to tell the king about Haman's plot to kill all the Jews and get the king to issue another decree where the Jews were allowed to defend themselves and kill anybody who tries to attack them. And the story goes, the Jews end up defending themselves. They destroy all their enemies all because both Esther and Mordecai were in the right place at the right time. And that, that's the basic overview of the story of Esther. It leads to the passage that we read today. After the Jews defeat their enemies, they create this annual Jewish festival called Purim. Uh, according to 922, they were supposed to remember how the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And I basically just picked this passage because it's like a good, concise summary of what happens in the book of Esther. And the Jewish people, they had this festival called Purim where they would remember this story and, and, and celebrate and ultimately, this is the climax of a great reversal in which a very, very, very dark outlook for the Jewish people gets reversed and their sorrow turns into gladness. Okay, basic summary of the book. Now, what are we supposed to learn from the book of Esther? What are we supposed to get out of it? It's a nice story, but why is it in the Bible? And where is God in this story if he isn't even mentioned once? Well, that's the point. That's the point of Esther. Just like Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, you could enjoy the story on the surface, and it's filled with, like, tragedy. It's even filled with comedy. It's filled with tension. It's, it's like a nice story. You can interpret all of these coincidental events that happen that work in favor of the Jews as kind of pure happenstance, or you can interpret it another way uh, and interpret it in view of, hey, what is actually happening here? You see, this book is not about lucky coincidences that are ha happening. This book is actually about a God who is at work on behalf of his people, even when it seems like he's not there. Even when it seems like he is hidden, even when it seems like he is absent, he is at work on behalf of his people. 
This is a book that is meant to give hope to God's people that in spite of being in an exile, in spite of being in unfavorable circumstances, in spite of even feeling or sensing that God is no longer speaking anymore and God is no longer there anymore, God has not entirely abandoned his people. See, Esther and Mordecai, they are these complex figures from a Jewish perspective because, you know, they're not people who exactly follow the, the Jewish law. Um, if you were just to compare somebody like Daniel to Mordecai, you know, Daniel was somebody who didn't hide his Jewish identity, whereas Mordecai was someone who said, you know, Esther, hide your identity. It's like survival mode. While Esther demonstrates a great deal of courage and uh, the famous line that she says, like, if I perish, I perish, when she wants to approach the king and tell her uh, some of the plots that are going on, um, you know, some of her actions are also not consistent with Mosaic law. So I don't think these are necessarily meant to be moral examples for the Jewish people, but these are supposed to be characters that project hope to the Jewish people. That no matter how dark things get and no matter how dark things appear, God is still in control. No matter how absent God seems, he's still there, working. Now, I was reading a, a book on Esther, and the author made the point that Esther is actually a very important book for uh, a secular culture, uh, in particular in the West, because in a secular culture, sometimes it's our, the default is not to acknowledge that God is at work uh, in the events of our lives or in the events of our world, and people will often try to understand things apart from God's activity. So something occurs by luck, something occurs by chance, something occurs by coincidence, um, but not because God is orchestrating it. I have a friend who was expressing, uh, and he's like a non-Christian friend, so he's like kind of expressing how well things have gone throughout his life. And he would say, man, the universe is definitely looking out after me. And I would say, no, not the universe, God, <laughs> right? God is looking out after you. And then he would kind of chuckle. He's like, yeah, okay, okay, right, right, God. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, God is orchestrating everything in your life. It's not chance, it's not luck, it's not this like ambiguous, like, universe, but it's an actual uh, person, three persons, right? God. Since the culture that we live in is largely secular, Christians, I think we have to be very intentional to look for God's activity, to interpret uh, our lives in view of God's activity, even when it seems like he's hidden. Uh, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about everything that had to happen in order for me to end up at, in this very spot right now to be at Good News Church, to be preaching at Good News Church in this very moment. <clears throat> you know why I'm here? I could say one of the reasons why I'm here is because somebody at Rutgers University decided to make their application easy and only make the application just the application and require no essay, right? Here's why. Uh, because Rutgers University doesn't require you to write an essay for a college application, and because I wasn't a very ambitious high school student, when it came time to apply for colleges, I only applied to two schools. The two schools I applied to were Penn State and Rutgers. You know why I applied to those two schools? Because all you had to do was fill out the application. They didn't require essays and all this other stuff, interviews, right? So uh, I fill out the application. I ended up getting into Rutgers. I ended up going to Rutgers. Because I went to Rutgers, you know who I met? I met Pastor John, the, the pastor who planted this church. After college, Pastor John decided to plant another church uh, up in J New Jersey, and I decided uh, to join that church plant. During that time, I started dating my wife, and I didn't make very much money at that time, and I wanted to get married, and I needed money to buy a, uh, a ring, so I found a job for a couple months working at a school uh, as an admissions counselor. 
I had no intention of building a career there, but I only worked there long enough until I saved money to buy an engagement ring for my wife so that we could get married. <laughs> now that church plant that I was a part of, which was happening at the same time, decided to merge with another church. Uh, it didn't go very well, so the church ended up dissolving, and around that time, Good News Church in New York was looking for uh, to add a staff person. So Pastor John said, hey, do you want to come to New York? But we can't give you uh, a salary to live on, so you have to find a job. And this was in the middle of the financial crisis where tons of people were getting laid off, and I had graduated seminary, so I had no real job skills. But because I worked for those couple months at a school to save money for a wedding ring, that experience actually allowed me to find a job as a financial aid counselor, which allowed me to end up serving this church. And of course, I'm leaving out a lot of details uh, in terms of what happened, but a lot of fortunate things happened to us in order for me to be in this very moment serving this church, preaching this very message, right? You get the point. If Rutgers had a more strenuous application process, I probably would have gone to Penn State. <laughs> uh, if I went to Penn State, I wouldn't have met Pastor John. If I didn't meet Pastor John, I wouldn't have helped him with the church plant. If that church plant hadn't dissolved when it did, then I wouldn't have ended up coming here. Uh, if I didn't work at an admissions counselor, and, and I wouldn't have found a job as a financial ca aid counselor in the middle of a financial crisis with no marketable skills. See, you see all of these things that are happening. Uh, so many details happen along the way, and I can look at all those details and say, wow, what a coincidence, right? What happenstance? Or I could say, even when I didn't know it, God was actually at work orchestrating things according to his plan and according to his purpose. But in order to do that, I really have to kind of break through that secular mindset and kind of just say, like, oh, life is just happening and uh, chance is just happening and really say, you know what? God is the one who led me here. God is the one who led me to this point. If you all spend some time thinking about what had to have happened in order for you to be at this very point in your life, maybe even to, um, you know, have the friends that you have or the spouses that you have or the kids that you have, whatever it is, to get to this very point in your life, I think you could probably make similar connections. That God has always been active even when it doesn't seem like he's there. And by the way, I'm not just talking about like good circumstances, like when the church plant dissolved, that was like a very, uh, you know, negative experience, but it was an experience that was necessary to bring me to this point. And I, I just share that because just on a practical level, you know, this week, <clears throat> this week in particular, I just started to feel a lot of anxiety. Uh, if you were at the congregational meeting or if you saw the congregational meeting video, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going through a transition and becoming a, I call it a co-vocational pastor, which basically means I'm going to serve this church as a pastor, uh, but also, um, you know, start a new job or a new career. And this new job, it actually starts tomorrow. And <clears throat> kind of in anticipation for it, this week, uh, there are these thoughts that came into my mind. Things like, oh my gosh, did I just make a huge mistake, right? <laughs> uh, what, if I don't, um, what if I don't make it? Uh, what if I made the wrong decision? What if this ends up like putting my family and this church like in a, in a worse situation? <laughs> so I, I started to feel a lot of pressure and anxiety. Be like, oh man, I gotta be successful. I gotta make it in this next season of life. And it, it made me very anxious. Then I started thinking about the book of Esther because I had to, because I was preparing a sermon on this. And, you know what, I, I tell you the truth, I'm not saying this just because I'm preaching it, the anxiety actually went away. And here's why it went away. I'm not saying this will happen to you if you read or study the book of Esther, I hope it does, but I'm, I'm just telling you what happened to me. I started to think about the fact that God was in control 
and how even in the worst circumstances in the story of Esther, he's able to control all of these events and orchestrate all of these events. I started to think about how he is so sovereign that he can even use bad things. He can even use sin and evil for his purposes. And you know what? If he can do that, that even if I make the wrong choice, and of course this is not an excuse to like, <clears throat> you know, make bad choices in life. There is this mysterious uh, interaction between God's sovereignty and our free will. But <clears throat> I'm trying to make the best choice, even if it's not the right choice. Here's what I realized. You know what? God is still in control. He's still in control of the outcome of my life. And my life doesn't turn out the way that it does only because of my ability to make the best choices in my life. <laughs> it's all based on God's sovereignty, right? And that gave me a lot of comfort. And I tell you, when I thought about that and reflected on that, because of the book of Esther, right, I don't feel anxious anymore. We have this, uh, <clears throat> you know, this deep spiritual net to catch us even when we fall, even when we fail. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us because isn't that what the gospel of Jesus ultimately shows us? That God is so sovereign that he would use this Roman method of crucifixion in order to bring out salvation and renewal to this world. In spite of Jesus being betrayed by Judas, in spite of even the denial of Peter, God still accomplished his plan of redemption for his people. And in that plan, he's called many of us to be adopted into his family, to become citizens of a heavenly kingdom, that we get to be the people of God in spite of all of our past dysfunctions, in spite of our, all of our present struggles, in spite of all of our future worries. And if through faith in the gospel, we are the people of God, here's what the book of Esther shows us, that God is always working on behalf of his people, even if it seems like he's not even there. When you look out into the world, it is easy to interpret the circumstances in a way that wonders, where is God in all of this, right? Uh, not everywhere in the world. Uh, in some parts of the world, it may seem very obvious that God is actively on, at work on behalf of his people. But maybe here, in particular in, in like New York City, in the secular West, maybe it seems hard to see that God is actually actively at work. And as believers, we kind of have to push through that secular veneer and say, no, it's not chance, it's not fortune, it's not luck. God is actually at work in my life and in the life of the church for his church, even when the church goes through seasons of not being great. So the last thing I'll say is this, for us, uh, we have to try harder to see God's activity when the world will just say it's coincidence. We have to try hard to recognize that no matter how dark things get, there's always light. Given the season where it seems like there's a lot of sad or negative stories in the world, and I would say even about the state of churches in America, we have to try harder to recognize that no matter how bad things get, even in churches, no matter how uh, spiritually dry it might seem like in churches, or even in our church, no matter how overpowered the church may seem compared to the wider culture, God is still sovereign and in control and orchestrates the events of the world according to his providential hand for his people. There's a, I'll, I'll conclude with this, but there's a commentator named Karen Job, and uh, she has this great insight on the book of Esther. She says this, the great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. 
Jesus' last words were, Go and make disciples of all nations, and surely I am with you always at the very end of the age. And then ironically, he left. Nevertheless, our Lord is omnipotently present even where he is most conspicuously absent. I thought that last line especially was so beautiful. If you don't feel like you hear God or see God and he seems like he's absent in your life or in your world, he definitely is not. I would say that because of the Holy Spirit, in some ways, he's more present than he has ever been for us. Today, we are uh, at Setup. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And you know what this meal represents for us? One of the things it represents for us is this. Jesus is present. And he gives us visual reminders to show us that, indeed, he is present. And we're going to partake together in a few moments. Uh, but before we do, uh, maybe we can just spend a a short moment reflecting on the ways that God has been omnipotently present to us even when it seems like he's most conspicuously absent. And after a few moments, I'll pray for us and we'll partake in the Lord's Supper. You know, one of the things I think that there is <clears throat> in our congregation, I think there's a lot of anxiety about the future and about choices and decisions that we have to make. Uh, I think a lot of us are uh, maybe in that boat. <clears throat> um, you know, I want you to pray to God and uh, not even ask God anything specific to circumstances, but ask God to remind you that, yeah, he is in control of your life uh, in a powerful way. And maybe that'll give you some, some uh, reprieve or release uh, from a lot of the anxiety we feel about decisions that we have to make uh, regarding the future. And uh, we still have to make those choices, of course, uh, but to make those choices uh, with a deeper faith that uh, God is in control of all things. So maybe we could pray, spend a moment praying for that. God, we, uh, we pray, God, that you would remind us, our congregation, about uh, who you are, uh, even uh, when you seem hidden from us. That we would know that your power, your reach, 
your sovereignty, your providence, it extends far beyond what we could even possibly imagine. That, um, you know, as G.K. Chesterton once said that looking at the world in inches uh, will make anybody go crazy. And so we can't do it. We can't look at the entire world in inches. But God, you are so great and big and grand that you can look at um, the smallest molecule all at the same time, all across time, and orchestrate all of these things according to your purpose and to your will. And because we trust in your character that you are good, that you are wise, that you are full of love, and because you've confirmed uh, all of those things climactically uh, in what you did for us through Christ, we can also be confident that whatever plans you have for us are also good and for our good, even when we don't always understand it. And so, God, I pray that you would give us a greater sense that, yes, you are in control. Like, yes, you are there. Yes, you are with us. Yes, you are seeing us. Yes, you are moving uh, according to this great will. And simply just give us a deeper trust in that. And maybe that'll bear fruit in greater confidence and greater sense of security and less anxiety uh, as we have to make decisions that you call us to make. And uh, I pray that would lead to uh, greater f spiritual flourishing in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.